You're listening to Colorado Outdoors, the podcast for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. The winter months can be a challenge living here in the state of Colorado for humans and animals alike. And just like you and I have to have ample shelter, protection, and food to insulate us from the elements, when Mother Nature whips up the winter weather in the Rocky Mountains, our wildlife here in the state of Colorado seeks protection as well. Today on Colorado Outdoors, we're talking big game winter range. You're listening to Colorado Outdoors, the podcast for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. I'm your host, Mark Johnson. The podcast is powered by Great Outdoors Colorado. GOCO invests a portion of Colorado lottery proceeds to help preserve and enhance the state's parks, trails, wildlife, rivers, and open spaces. Its independent board awards competitive grants to local governments and land trusts and makes investments through Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Created when voters approved a constitutional amendment back in 1992, GOCO has committed more than $1.2 billion in lottery proceeds to more than 5,200 projects in all 64 counties without any tax dollar support. Well, it's time to talk winter range, and joining us is Jeremy Huntington, Area Wildlife Manager. He's out of Summit in Grand Counties. Jeremy, thanks for being with us here on Colorado Outdoors. Let's start with something very basic. We hear the term winter range. Tell our listeners exactly what we're talking about. Certainly, Mark. Thank you. Uh, so, you know, typically as temperatures drop and we start getting the snow accumulations and the higher higher elevations and that snow start particularly accumula- accumulating in the north-facing slopes, uh, most of that forage dip- dip- typically becomes buried and um, inaccessible to wildlife to, to feed on. So winter range is kind of those areas that are open that don't get those snow loads. So the limited supplies of food and forage that's, that's available um, for, for animals that don't get snow, that's kind of becomes your traditional winter range. So I think of uh, general things of um, where you might have sagebrush, the self-facing slopes, you know, those slopes where... Uh, where those animals are going to go to. So it's really about the concentration of uh, locations that the animals move to that have their needs of survival, which are going to be, you know, the, the food and water and have some, some shelter, that habitat that's critical for them. So this is obviously happening in a winter when, when obviously the food sources are really scarce. Uh, is it common for big game animals to kind of uh, re- return every year to the same winter range areas, or, or do they migrate around a little bit? Yeah, you know, deer and elk and typically and pronghorn, they'll have kind of their traditional winter range that they move to. So uh, a lot of this is a annual basis that, that there's a movement quarter. So they have their summer range where they spend their time in summer. They have their calving and production areas where they have their young and where the deer drop their fawns and elk drop their calves and and then you know they spend their summers in the higher elevation and more dispersed and less concentrated in areas and so winter range as those as we get into the fall they start moving making their migration paths and some migrations can be 
uh, relatively short, and others can be expand over you know a couple hundred miles where animals can move to get to where they're going to be able to survive for the winter. And there's a lot of times these areas are are going to be lower elevation in those sagebrush fields, and each each area, each herd population has kind of that their own winter range that they move to. Um, Riparian areas can also be good, and actually we have what we call critical winter range around riparian corridors where those animals move and and have the available food source, but also the ability willows and trees and such could provide them some cover from from wind and how uh, snow drifts in. You know, this may seem like some kind of a simplistic question, but why would CPW be so concerned with winter rage? Why is it so important of a topic for us to talk about and for CPW to be paying attention to? So winter range is what provides those limited resources for animals, particularly such as deer, elk, and uh, uh, pronghorn. And ultimately, you know, it, it's it's very limited. It's probably their, the most limited habitat. So these animals are moving to winter range as part of their migration process because they're not able to uh, survive in those higher elevations where the snow loads are deep and, and there's just nothing for them to eat. So it's really the only place winter range is the habitat um, that they move to because it's the only place that provides that uh, deep or that that available food source for them. You know, I guess when we think about winter range, maybe we think of maybe elk and and moose and deer, I guess. Is it limited to that, or are are there other species that depend upon winter range come this time of year? There are. I mean, sage-grouse is one of them that, that we have that are also... You know, they, they winter, they don't they don't hibernate or migrate like what, you know, other birds migrate and fly south. Well, bears might den up, but sage, sage grouse and, and some of those species, they, they kind of also um, make, you know, just make it through the winter uh, where they can. And so, you know, a component of winter range is often those areas that are blown off where the, where the doesn't accumulate the snow and the south-facing slopes that tend to burn off burn off that snow and so that that provides the the food you know the limited food as long as as well as the riparian areas so i I guess what really makes winter range the most important thing is that you know we're we're not creating more or getting more and over time over history when we have towns that develop and just through development that we see a decline in winter range and so that makes even some of these areas that animals are depending on even more critical, more important, because it, it's becoming less over time. And then as you have, in some areas, we might have uh, wildlife populations. You know, winter range is ultimately kind of our carrying capacity. So that's the limitation of that kind of part, in part determines how much the size of our herds that we're managing for. Sure. So if we have over abundance or, or, or we're high in our populations, then that the number of animals on the landscape could also be overgrazing and causing that, that increase could be a, have an impact, a negative impact on that winter range. It's, it comes down for them uh, to be able to, for us to be able to manage the, the populations so that we have appropriate balance between the number of animals on the landscape that the habitat can support and 
wintering just kind of our limiting factor as to what the population level can support or, you know, that the, what the habitat can support for our population. So that leads me to my next question here. So with all that being said then, what, what steps is CPW taking to protect winter range here in the state of Colorado? Over the years, we've done a lot of it working very closely with landowners. A lot of winter range is on private property, and landowners and private property owners are critical for um, helping with protecting winter range and and just providing that. Those tend to be where those animals move down to. And, and sometimes that creates some conflicts as far as, you know, you get elk particularly um, might like to come down and, and get into hay that, that a landowner or rancher might be feeding to to cattle. And, and so we work with them on that that um, just to try and find, find that balance. But, you know, there are some landowners that uh, have chose to, we have a, a request for a proposal process so we can, you know, a lot of times winter range that we're working on, we're protecting through conservation easements and working with land trust and, and through our uh, RFP process as far as sometimes we uh, will, um, we always have an opportunity working with a landowner to add uh, either easements or, you know, even purchase a lot of the properties that we purchase for our state wildlife areas um, are, have been focused on, on winter range and, um, that's just because of the importance that, that that habitat has to to protect it. You know, keep in mind across the state that winter range is kind of dwindling due to encroaching civilization, and so including a variety of from from the variety of development and increased outdoor recreation. The other thing that we've looked at as far as protecting that is working with partners and and having uh, winter range closures and restrictions. So. Typically, you'll see um, the dates vary depending on each land management agency, but we've worked with the BLM and Forest Service, for example, and there are some places where there's seasonal closures. Um, those dates for seasonal closures um, could could begin as, as uh, early as November 15th to December 15th is, is average, and each, when you're out recreating and, and spend time on BLM and Forest Service, property and even some some cpw properties uh, it's good to know before you go and and look at what those seasonal closures might might be you know i was chuckling when you talked about uh at wildlife getting into hay up at my place i've got some hay bandits i deal with on a regular basis so i know exactly what you're talking about hey we're talking about the closed areas you were just mentioning and the dates that uh, generally they close we live in a state where we've got a lot of population loves to recreate and they get up in the high country and moving around. So explain to people why it's important to stay out of those closed areas when they're shut down. It ultimately comes down to the reserves, the energy reserves that these animals have saved up and are burning these, these fat reserves. You know, they're burning these calories that are necessary for them to survive. Uh, ultimately, I mean, it's been said that uh, elk can lose uh, 40% of their weight um, from winter range, of their body weight during this time in, in winter. So, and that's even if they're left undisturbed. So if, if deer and elk lose up to 40% of their body weight even undisturbed each time that they have to flee, whether it be from 
a predator, whether it be from recreation and they get disturbed from a hiker or skiers or even dogs um, can have an impact. But that, that's even more energy that they're spending to, to flee from things when um, they should really be spending that time resting and they should be spending that time eating on whatever food, you know, think, keep in mind that the nutrition value in our winter range is, is really limited. Um, oftentimes what they are eating are dormant glass grasses and woody plants, um, and these just provide very limited nutrition, so you don't have a lot of calories coming in, sure. and that ultimately could lead to the, the uh, decline in survival from these animals and could cause, you know, starvation. So... Um, it's something that we monitor when when we uh, have come across. We actually have an ongoing uh, deer survival study um, here in Middle Park where I'm at, and a big component of that is we get mortality notifications. We have uh, deer that have collars on them. We, when they die, we get a mortality notification. Part of what we do as well is checking for herd health is, and monitoring their survival rates is, we will go out there and look at cause of death and see what what try to determine what caused that animal to die. So it might have been a roadkill, it might have been a predation, um, from or else. In some cases, we have uh, mortality from uh, from just lack of nutrition. And so with with that, we can look at their bone marrow and determine um, how how their uh, body condition is and and kind of how much fat that they had or, or energy that they had left so from time to time it's natural to have have some of those animals that don't make winter um winter mortalities you know that typically the weak going into winter are less likely to survive but we can also have impacts that if we have constant disturbance and they're using up those energy reserves or if we have a really hard winter that they're using up more of those energy reserves. Mm-hmm. Um, drought conditions can play into it, where if we have uh, the drought conditions could be such that they aren't coming into winter as healthy as they could with as much fat built up that they can survive, and so therefore they can go into winter in poor body condition, and that can lead to them not surviving winter. So. You know, you were talking about avoiding those human interactions, those closed areas, and the importance of that. How about other impacts that humans have on wildlife during the winter that maybe we don't think about? So one of the things is, uh, you know, deer and elk, they're, they're concentrated um, in those areas. And so also they tend to drop their antlers during winter range, you know, on winter range. So winter range is the place that deer and elk shed, shed their antlers and... Um, with that, with the visibility and the concentration, um, that is that that can spark a, a you know those are the places that are that folks have interest in going and collecting those sheds, those antlers that have fallen off, and that tends to you know be on winter range. Your challenge has been that um, as popularity with shed collection has significantly increased over you know the last decade, and as Folks are starting to go out there. That increased activity, especially in March and April, where these animals are really kind of remaining on their last fat stores that they've accumulated from the pre, you know from the previous summer. So um, you know these as as we have these longer days and these warmer temperatures and 
a signal of springs just around the corner. They've dropped their antlers. You know, it's nice to go out for a hike and, and for those desired looking for, um, you know, going that, that activity, just keep in mind that animals, they still have a long road ahead of them and survival, survival just continues to be that, that daily struggle. So one of the things that, that we've worked in 2018, um, and we've had some antler uh, collection, um, shed antler collection restrictions um, prior to 2018, but really in 2018 we made a statewide regulation that prohibits the collection of shed antlers on all public lands west of I-25. And those dates are from January 1st through April 30th. And that's intended to protect wintering animals. In addition to those restrictions, there's also special regulations that are in place over in the Gunnison Basin area. And those game management units are 54, 55, 66, uh, 67, and 551. And so in those, that area, um, a little different from the statewide is that it's, it's illegal to search and possess antlers or horns on public lands between uh, legal sunset hours and 10 a.m. from May 1st through May 15th. And a, a big part of that is protecting Gunnison sage grouse. And so if you're over in the, the Gunnison Basin area, um, they have a time restriction that that you can only, um, you, can't, you can't collect antlers until 10 a.m. After 10 a.m., you can go out and look for antlers after, after April 30th, so starting May 1st. Um, and then at sunset, uh, you, you can't look, search for any antlers after that. So that, that is one thing because of the popularity. Um, what we've done at CPW just to try and protect our wildlife populations from that increased disturbance. You know, a big part of it is also education. And there's certainly places that there's a lot of winter range that doesn't have any protections on it. And so as for that, our, you know, our goal is to educate folks as far as the impacts and just be mindful that, you know, yes, it's a, a nice spring day and temperatures are coming out and it's a great day to go for, for a walk and, and explore, but just being mindful of, uh, if you see deer, you see elk, you know, you're hiking around sagebrush and, and lower elevation areas that are starting to melt out that have low snow loads, there's a good chance that those animals are going to be in the area. And just being, being mindful, especially if you see animals from a distance. That's the nice thing about winter ranges. Typically, the same forested, thick treed, you know, you can see for a distance in winter range. It's typically those open areas. So you can... You know, before you go out for a hike, you can glass with binoculars and check um, the, if you're, you know, planning on hiking in an area that doesn't have restrictions, but um, just kind of doing your part um, to minimize those impacts. So I said before, we worked with uh, uh, Forest Service and BLM for those for those restrictions, and so it's again just important to know before you go as to what restrictions there are. I know specifically like Wolford Mountain area and BLM. Um, outside of Kremlin would be kind of one example that we have some travel management. And so that's also part of the challenge of restrictions. It really depends on where you go. Some of it, some of the restrictions that have been in place, it's no activity. So no one can be, you know, on on the property um, or in, in a designated area for winter range. No one can be there. It's just like a no disturbance zone. Other 
winter range restrictions like what's up at Wolford Mountain is you can still walk on on the BLM in, in that area. However, you can't. It's closed to motorized travel, um, and they do have some limited snowmobiling on designated routes. So each property um, in each area might have its own restrictions. Typically, those are going to be posted. Um, so it's important if you get to an area that you're going out and plan on on recreating. Um, just kind of you know you can you know be mindful of those signs and and read the signs that's posted. And then also just being aware there's there's a lot of um, contacting you know the the local forest service office or looking at their websites, um, CPW's office, the BLM, just knowing that Winter Range has multiple land managers that that oversee where where these animals are wintering. So it might be private, it might be you know a, a different land management agency. Some cases are county. Some counties have Winter Range restrictions. So. Um, it's really um, about knowing the location and, and knowing before you go. And if you have any questions, just uh, reaching out to those land management agencies. And lastly, here's we're talking winter range and having interactions with animals. Why this time of year here in the state of Colorado? And it becomes such a traffic issue, obviously. Why do we see so many animals along the highways here during this time of year? Yeah, certainly. The highways in in those byways, they, they cross those migrations and those movement patterns for for animals. So typically, thinking also where we have have that development, we have a increased number of animals moving to winter range, so we have higher concentrations um, in the you know late fall, um, throughout the winter, and into the spring on both ends of of winter. So in the fall, um, we have a lot of animals that are moving, transitioning to winter range from higher country. So therefore, they're also making a lot of road crossings, highway crossings, railroad crossings to get to that area as they're migrating through. And so they're prone to being hit by vehicles or being hit by a train um, during that. And then during the winter time, you have the high concentration of animals that, that are on this, this winter range. And a lot of times those riparian areas tend to be also a component of, of winter range. So... Um, you think a lot of times those that are the low lying where we've put our highways, we put our roads where where the train tracks run, um, tends to be kind of in the middle of that. And so sometimes if you have their available food source is on one side of the highway and then on the other side is, is the river, um, or, or their available, you know, watering source, that could cause them kind of moving back and forth and we get those um areas in in certain locations where there is an increased movement back and forth, maybe on a daily uh, pattern um, where, you know, every day, every evening they might move move down uh, towards the river and then in the morning they move up on the, uh, higher up on the south-facing slope on the hillside in the sun um, that's exposed. So you could also have throughout the winter just daily movements that could cause the, the some animals to go back and forth across the roads, increasing their vulnerability for um, um, being hit. And then in the springtime, we have our spring migration. So these animals that have survived the winter, you know, they made it, they're done. And as that snow melts um, and in those higher elevations, so the lower elevations melt out first and get less snowpack, the higher elevation typically get your more snowpack. And those higher elevations melt out later. You know, in the spring, they're still getting snow where it might not snow in a lower elevation. So as that melts out, the animals, the, that new vegetation starts greening up, and that green up 
those new grasses that are coming up and the new forage that's just starting to sprout, that is like critical for those animals to get that uh, very important nutrition that they haven't had for several months because they've been eating these dormant plants and then that they really focus on that green up. So they follow that green up and we kind of um, call it surfing the, the green wave as, as you will, that as you know, at higher elevation greens up, then they move to those um, locations. And so that can cause those animals start moving, increased movement and in the in the springtime, which could also be prone. So ultimately, it's, you know, we have uh, in the wintertime too, uh, time uh, for when folks get off, you know, when the daylight, the days are shorter. And so when, you know, when we, we're kind of past that now, we're on the, the uh, uh, you know, we're, we're adding daylight hours each, each day now, so it's a moment that we're all looking for. But, you know, in those times where uh, more people might be getting off work at 5 and 6 o'clock and driving in the dark at that, that you know, around sunset time um, is where those animals really kind of start moving and transitioning. So it's, it's really important that around sunset, um, just, you know, slowing down, taking those extra precautions, um, for for animals, you know, they, the, you know, not being distracted um, while you're driving, and you know, it, it's it's uh, good for for just in case you see animals and just having that awareness of animals being near those roadsides. The other thing is that a lot of times, see uh, that for catching, you know, for plowing snow, um, they'll plow a little bit of the shoulders, and sometimes that 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 snow. Um, adjacent to those roads could uh, either from the snow removal process that there could be some vegetation that starts melting out next to those highways and you can get some increased growth or that new growth um, immediately adjacent to the road that the animals are coming to find that green uh, more nutritious vegetation Mm -hmm. Um, we've also had cases where um, the the salt and the stuff that that uh, that are put on the roads to melt the ice um, can also be an attractant, and, and some of those animals can come in to try and get that salt off of off of the road as they're moving through. So there's a lot of things that we've done, and, and there's a lot of things we're currently doing um, as far as assessing these movement patterns across highways and, and really looking at places that we can put overpasses and underpasses and, and fence to kind of direct wildlife crossings, designated wildlife crossings, um, to get across our, our roads to really kind of make sure that we have that movement because that movement is critical for the for the populations to build to get, you know, from winter range to their summer range to where water sources are to food sources are. Um, so those crossings are critical, but it's also, um, we've had some huge success where we've reduced mortality for animals crossing over 90% on Highway 9, where we've put in wildlife fencing and planned out and orchestrated uh, wildlife crossings for them to use. Yeah, we've talked about some of those wildlife crossings, in fact, here on Colorado Outdoors. But today we've been talking Big Game Winter Range. Outstanding information today, Jeremy. We appreciate you joining us here on Colorado Outdoors. Absolutely. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, um, just, you know, kind of keep in mind that when we're out recreating that we could all have have impacts and and just kind of being aware of what those impacts are and just be thoughtful of how we can reduce those.
Our thanks to Area Wildlife Manager Jeremy Huntington out of Summit and Grand Counties for joining us today on Colorado Outdoors, talking big game winter range. Remember, for anything and everything pertaining to Colorado Parks and Wildlife, go to our website at cpw.state.co.us. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Outdoors, powered by Great Outdoors Colorado. I'm your host, Mark Johnson. Until next time, get out and enjoy the great outdoors in our beautiful state of Colorado. Colorado Parks and Wildlife is a nationally recognized leader in conservation, outdoor recreation, and wildlife management. The agency manages 42 state parks, 960-plus species of wildlife in Colorado, more than 350 state wildlife areas, and a host of recreational programs from hunting and fishing to the state's trails program, boat registration, snowmobiles, off-highway vehicles, and more. All of its management is in perpetuity for the enjoyment of Coloradans and its visitors.